yeah, like all the things that you've ever maybe hoped and prayed for with God in terms of your own transformation, it's hard to see when you're in it. But like, it's possible that they're right there right now. And God's actually answering your prayers by allowing you to walk through this valley of the shadow of death. Welcome to Life with God, a Renovare podcast, a place for unhurried and thoughtful conversations about interactive life with God. I'm Nathan Foster, and today I sat down with pastor and author Andrew Arndt for a conversation about the desert fathers and mothers and his book, Streams in the Wasteland. Before we begin, let me offer a brief introduction to the desert fathers and mothers. During the third and fourth century, a series of men and women sold their possessions, moved into the Egyptian, Palestine, Arabia, and Persian desert to live a solitary life of prayer. Now, eventually these desert hermits began living together, the advent of the Christian monk, launching what we know today as monastic communities. While moving into the desert to seek a deeper life with God sounds quite radical, and it was, but they were in good company, following the example of Moses, John the Baptist, and Jesus. If you want to find God, you go to the desert. The desert and its harsh life was their learning space. What we know about these ancient desert dwellers comes to us from a series of stories and sayings, some very practical, some bizarre and confusing. What's clear is this odd collection of folks had a wisdom and depth, opening a wide expanse of who we can become. They lived a different life and have much to teach us. Here are a couple of examples. One of the brothers committed a great fault, and the elders assembled and sent for Abbot Moses to join them. He, however, did not want to come. The priest sent him a message saying, Come, the community of the brethren is waiting for you. So he arose and started off, and taking with him a very old basket full of holes, he filled it with sand and carried it behind him. The elders came out to meet him and said, What is this, Father? The elder replied, My sins are running out behind me, and I do not see them. And today I come to judge the sins of another. They, hearing this, said nothing to the brother and pardoned him. It was said of Abba Athigo that for three years he carried a stone in his mouth until he learned to be silent. Abbot Pastor said, A man must breathe humility and the fear of God just as ceaselessly as he inhales and exhales the air. What I found significant in my conversation with Andrew is how the stories and lives of the desert fathers and mothers were a sort of tether for him in the midst of a crisis where they certainly do cast an expansive vision of God and who we can become. I spoke with Andrew from his church in Colorado Springs, Colorado. 
Andrew, how did you come familiar with the Desert Fathers and Mothers? I think my first and most significant exposure to them uh, was uh, through Henry Nowen. I had fallen in love with his writings pretty early in my pastoral ministry. So I, I left seminary in 2006 and started as a pastor. And golly, was it in the name of Jesus, maybe? Like kind of his book on leadership wound up in my hands for the first time. And I just loved that. And I thought, this guy, he knows something about holiness that not a lot of people know and how to lead in the spirit, um, lead in the spirit and lead out of a spirit of holiness that not a lot of people know. So then I, I think I started just kind of reading anything I could get my hands on of his. And I remember reading Way of the Heart, yes. which that is his book about, you know, the desert dwellers and uh, gosh, in just like signature now in fashion, it's short and it's simple, but like deceptively simple. It's like so deep. And so he takes the <laughs> solitude, silence and prayer. You know, he takes the statement of Abba Arsenius, flee, be silent, pray always as like the framework for like, how do we escape the delusions of a violent consumeristic society? You know, we might need to flee, be silent and pray always. We might need to construct our own deserts of the spirit. And I loved what he did. Like I loved how it wasn't like a research project. It was like he was mm -hmm. kind of sharing the wisdom that he had learned. And he did it in such a, it's such a deft touch and so elegant. So I knew about these guys. Um, I think what really, really threw me into their the depths of their wisdom was a, a personal crisis. And I think it's often the case that a personal crisis is, you know, if you linger with it, and don't run away from it. It's usually a doorway into transformation if you let it be. And it was... Um, There's the key, right? Linger with is, it and don't run away. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah, like all the things that you've ever maybe hoped and prayed for with God in terms of your own transformation, it's hard to see when you're in it. But like, it's possible that they're right there right now. And God's actually answering your prayers by allowing you to walk through this valley of the shadow of death. And, um, so it was during that season, uh, which was a season of really significant loss and, um, a real significant season, uh, of feeling like in terms of my, my person that I'd been stripped down to the absolute, you know, core, like, like a house ripped down to the studs. That's how I felt. And I didn't really know how to make sense of that and what to do. And it was the most significant crisis I'd ever been through. And somebody said, you know, like, you need to read the Desert Fathers and Mothers. And I said, well, I know the Desert Fathers and Mothers, you know. And they said, no, you really need to, like, read them, read them. Don't, like, read what others have said about them. Like, go to them. And I said, why? And they basically said, the thing that you're trying so hard to, like, worm your way out of and avoid and the thing that this thing is odious to you, you know, like you're trying to push this crisis away and the pain of it, they sought it. <laughs> like for them, the crisis was the goal. Like for them, the crisis of like being stripped to the essence and finding, 
naked deity and the nakedness of their own soul, you know, like that's what they were going for. And they found that stripping to be like a path to God. So, um, I was back in 2017. I, I remember buying at that point, I bought Benedict awards, alphabetical collection of the sayings of the desert fathers and mothers, which just sounds maybe like the strangest thing to do, but I read them devotionally. Like I would wake up in the morning and I would read the scripture and I would pray and then right on top of my Bible or underneath my Bible was the alphabetical collection. And I would work my way through it, maybe reading a page a day or two pages a day. And I would try to find that one little nugget, that one little kernel that felt like, ooh, that's like illuminating the path. Like that's giving me a lot enough light to do this day and do it well. I mean, they eventually became, they're such oddballs. <laughs> they're, just, <laughs> they're just the strangest people. But I don't know what it was. I I found a communion of spirit with them and just went, I think I get these people. I think they get me. And I think that they've gone further along this path than I have. And I think that they have something to say to me. So I eventually came to describe them as like cartographers of the holy. You know, it was like they were the people that were like, I'm out here. I'm kind of in my rowboat paddling around and the, at the edge of the sea and they came to me with kind of like a map mm. and they were like actually this is what you can expect and this is what's in front of you these are some things to avoid like you could shipwreck yourself here but this is a place over here where the winds pick up really high and if you put up your sails you might actually get caught on the gust on a gust of the spirit and it'll take you to places that you never mm -hmm. even dreamed possible you know it's like that kind of thing so they became really dear to me in uh, 2017. It's almost the end of 2023. So it's been over six years. Of, I still read them on the daily. And of course, that's taken me to lots of other places, kind of learning more about the monastic movement and realizing geez, how, how much they were putting their finger on the essential patterns of humanness and preserving that and handing that, handing that down. And I, I'm a pastor uh, pastoring here in Colorado Springs in the 21st century. And I see the devastation of our humanity in our society just right up front. Like yeah, I've got a front row seat to it. I feel like it's being ripped apart and people just don't know how to live. They don't know the patterns that God has given us as human beings. So I find myself like leaning on them, not just for like personal wisdom, but I've actually found them to be helpful pastorally too, mm -hmm. you know? What direction did you find from them? Well, I think what they convinced me of, and I believe this, I think I had just not like lived it or seen it done practically, but they convinced me that the path of like, I think we have a lot of accoutrements that we use to prop up our being, you know? And so for like, in my case, like the, the crisis that I was referring to was this church that we pastored in Denver that we loved so much. And I really thought that I would be there my entire life, you know, and said that to them over and over again, you know, like, we're going to be here 30 years and we're going to rip off a life's work with you. And when that didn't wind up being the case, it was so disorienting to me because I had defined myself and I, it was inevitable almost, you know, like I took, I started that thing at 28 so I'm still trying to figure out who I am and at 28. You're eager to prove yourself, you know? And so I didn't realize it when I was in it, but I 
that became a calling card for me. It became a source of significance and security for me. So like if I walked into a room of pastors, I could say to them, you're that guy, (laughs) I'm that guy who does that thing. And they knew about that. Oh, you're that guy who does that thing. And now what happens? I'm safe. Uh, I don't have to fight for who I am in this room, you know, but that's the thing that's external to you. You know what I mean? Like you're not, that's not who you are. It's a thing that you do. And the truth is that you only really do that thing in part. (laughs) The spirit of God is actually doing a hundred percent of it really. And then of course there are a lot of people that share with you. So you, to define yourself by that thing is like a lie. And they convinced me that you actually, without all of those accoutrements and those supports, you actually can live and you can be really deeply rooted in God. And I, I just found that to be like so fascinating about them. Like they were just determined, like I said, to live with their kind of naked selves before the Lord. I don't need a ton of money and I don't need, I certainly don't need power and position. I don't need all that stuff that the world says that you need to be a self. And their legacy bears witness to that. They're colorful characters (laughs) in part because they're true. Hmm. You know what I mean? Like they're not just like, they're not just like a pastiche of what their culture told them they needed to be. They are who they are because of the flowering of their personality as their lives are hidden with Christ in God. And, um, and that, that, that can sound like really ethereal and up in the clouds. But like for me, I think I needed to listen to them on that front because part of what the Lord was doing was trying to return me to myself as myself is in God. And I couldn't do that if I had this thing that I kept defining myself by. And what was funny, Nathan, was that I'm going to say like the first year or so that I was out here in Colorado Springs, like I kept trying to concoct, like in my heart, I kept trying to concoct like a comeback story. (laughs) So it'd be like, oh, okay, well, I've had to let this thing go temporarily. But like, what if we plant a new church somewhere else in some other cool city and we do another cool thing? You know, and I just, I kept trying to find another external thing to prop myself up. And it's like over and over again, the Lord was like, Stop it. Stop it. Why don't you just like lay down in this grave that I've put you in? And like, you know, like what we say, like when we conduct funeral services, you know, what we say, rest in peace. And that's what I felt like the Lord was saying to me, like in that season, it's like, Andrew, you keep trying to squirm out of this thing, but I've like made a bed for you. Like, why don't you just go to sleep? Like your soul is weary and you got a lot of stuff that's like goofed up in your head. Why don't you kind of go into a long sleep of the soul here, of the spirit, <laughs> and let me renew you and restore you? And it wasn't until <laughs> I remember getting to the point where this is, I've told so many people this, but like, I think the moment where a real genuine sense of resurrection actually started to happen to me was when I no longer really even needed a, a resurrection as I defined it. Mm-hmm. But I was just so content to be in that spot. And I got to the place. This was like the rebuilding that occurred in me. It was like I got to the place where when I woke up in the morning, I was so genuinely happy just to be alive. You know, like it was like, oh, I'm breathing again. <laughs> I can't believe I've been given another day and I have this woman who I've been married to for 17, 18 years and these kids and like our family is 
good and I have a job? What? Like I have a job with people I like and they like, you know what I mean? It was like a rebuilding of my life on gratitude. The sense of like, if all I ever had in the world was you, God, it would have been enough. And you just keep giving more. Hmm. Why would I be like imagining that I need something beyond this? And I, the desert fathers and mothers, they helped me like live into Psalm 16, you know, where the psalmist, like I've set the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand. I won't be shaken. And the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Like, why do I need more than this? This is what it is. So they just convinced me of that, you know, they convinced me that the cell that God gives you, whatever that cell is, you know, it's like the one guy that said, sit in your cell and your cell will teach you everything. Like, why are you trying to fabricate another cell? Why do you keep trying to build a bigger cell? Why are you trying to leave this one? Why don't you just it be in it? found you. That's <laughs> it's right. right here. <laughs> it's right here. Why don't you just be in it? And why don't you listen? Like Frederick Buechner says, you know, like, listen to your life. What's your life trying to tell you about the goodness of God? And maybe if you listen to it, your life will actually help right-size your soul, you know? So it was, people talk now about deconstruction and they usually mean beliefs by that. But for me, it was a deconstruction of, it was a more existential deconstruction, you know? Who am I? And, and, and like, I never lost sight of, you know, the essential Christian teaching, Trinity and incarnation and never lost my belief in the church. It wasn't that the deconstruction was more like my approach was wrong and there was, it needed to get burned to the ground and, and rebuild your approach. I, I think that the approach was an approach that was largely, it was built on striving on that sense of like accomplishment that validates you in the eyes of the world. And I, Man, I can remember, Nathan. I can remember. And I don't I don't know. It, to me, it feels like you almost have to go through a crisis to rid you of this. Because I think some of it is just like ego development in a young mind. How we make sense of who we are in the world. But I, I can remember thinking, like when I was in college, I remember thinking, well, as soon as I get the degree, then I'll feel like I'm good. And then it was like, I got it. And the next thing was like graduate school. So I was like, okay, but when I'm done with graduate school, that's when I'll feel awesome about myself. And then it was like, okay, yeah, but I'm not. And it, so, but maybe when I get my first pastoring job and then it was like, well, when I get my first lead pastoring job, and then it's like, well, maybe when the church is finally like successful, quote unquote, it's going, you know? And it just like, at some point you realize that you just keep the carrot. <laughs> is still like in front of you and you're just on this crazy brace track of accomplishment. And even though you talk about Matthew 11, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. And even though you would say like, Hey, look, God, you have nothing to prove. Uh, all of your actions betray what you're telling people. So I think that's a lot of what it was. I think it was, I think what, my approach was an approach that was basically defined by my need to prove myself to others. And so the, but what's tucked into that, that's just a, that's, uh, that's fear. Hmm. You're just afraid. You don't actually feel safe, you know? So everything that you do, you're running towards things visibly, but actually what's happening is you're running away. You're running away from whatever that, you know what I mean? Like that primordial monster is that you feel like is chasing you and is going to gobble you up if you rest for one second. 
And what the Lord wants to rid us of that. Now, here's the cool thing is on the other side of this, I think what I've found is that I'm a person that is wired to accomplish things. And I like accomplishing things. Like that's part of how God's made me, you know, uh, people now are like talking about like the generative drive. And for some of us, that's higher in us than in other people. And I think I'm a guy like that. I just feel good in my life when it's like, I've got a goal and I'm going to get it. And the difference is I'm not, I really am running towards it. I'm not running away from something. It's like the, it's more the feeling of, of again, Psalm 16, like the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. So why wouldn't I just like fling myself wildly into the pleasant place? You're You're now free to have it, free to enjoy it. And nothing is riding on it. So if I give myself to this one thing and it fails, cool. I don't know. I'll do the next thing or Mm -hmm. something else. I'm going to have like a lot of things going because God like gave me this life. And like, I really can't believe it, (laughs) you know, so I'm going to make the most of it. And if I die today, I die today. If he lets me breathe again tomorrow, I'm breathing again tomorrow and I'm going to throw myself into it again. So I, I think probably to a lot of people on the surface, it would look the same, but I think the motivation is different. And maybe that's, maybe that's the biggest shift that happened. Yeah. Fear. Yeah. Practically, what did it look like to lay down in the grave? It looked like a few things. I think I, I became more deliberate about uh, building open spaces in my life. So I was always disciplined with prayer in the morning and all that stuff. But then my days were kind of constant go mode. And uh, man, I can remember, especially during that first year, nine months, 12 months, 18 months, I would take these, you know, I'd get done with my work day. And instead of plopping down and opening up a book right away and reading for hours or writing the next thing, you know, I would go on these like long walks through the neighborhood and I would pop in some headphones. I would listen to music that soothed my soul and I just walk and cry, <laughs> you know, there was just like a lot of emotion that needed to come out and a lot of grieving that needed to happen. And at some point, you know, the psalmist says in Psalm 126, that those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. And at some point, those tears really did turn into songs of joy and gratitude. But I think they, I needed to cry them. And if I had just rushed into the next project, um, geez, I, the, the, it would have gone ungrieved. And therefore, there were joys that the Lord had for me that I would just have never touched. Hmm. So the long spaces to just like feel and to come back in touch with my heart and my emotions, I think those were really important. The other thing that was really important for me was, and this goes really directly to the desert dwellers, but uh, the vow of stability, like the willingness, I'll actually, it's two things. It's the vow of stability and really kind of the vow of submission. So the willingness to stay in place and then the, the willingness to give up your own will to the will of others. And so, boy, a thousand times here, I kept thinking about, tendering my letter of resignation and then moving on and doing something else. Cause it was just so hard to have moved from, you know, in my case, I was the lead pastor at our church in Denver. So that meant that I'm in, I'm sitting in the first seat. I'm always the conversation starter in the room, you know? And even though I did have people that I was submitted to still, I was for all intents and purposes at the top of that heap. 
And now all of a sudden I come to this church here and I'm many rungs down and I've got to learn. I genuinely had to learn how to submit again, learn how to sit in somebody's office and give a report on how the weekend service went, you know, knowing that what I think is amazing might not be what this person thinks is amazing. And I might have to come to a place where I have to adjust how I live my values because of how I'm submitted to somebody else. When you are ingrained in the soul of like being that first chair person leading the conversation, you're the tone setter for an organization. Jeez, man, that's a death. And it was a necessary death because what they find, these desert folks find is that, you know, like Jesus, like his whole life was a giving up of his will to the will of the father, such that there was a perfect confluence of wills like between them. And they understand that to be a place of great fruitfulness. So there's like a great story of this one guy, Abba John, the dwarf, who had a disciple. <laughs> he told the disciple to um, take a stick of wood, like this dead stick of wood and plant it and put it in the ground. And then he said, now I want you every day to like go very far away to a place where there's water. They're like, obviously they're in the desert. So there's this water and there's this water and it's like a, it's like a 12 hour walk away or something stupid like that. It's a really long journey. He's like, go get the water and come back. And I want you to water this stupid stick that you planted in the ground. And as the story goes, this disciple does this for three years. And then eventually that dry stick, it like bursts into flower and there's fruit on it. And Abba John says, behold, the fruit of obedience, the fruit of submission that there's, and there's, so what is the story doing? The story is telling us that there are some things like there are places of submission in our lives that sometimes just seem stupid. Why? Why would I do that? You know, why am I listening to you? I'm, I actually think I'm right about this and you're wrong about this, you know, but there's, a kind of higher righteousness than just being right about certain things. It's the right. It's a righteousness of soul. It's the righteousness that maps into the essential pattern of the cosmos, which is the father commanding and the son obeying. And somehow when we enter into that, we're tapping into the life of the spirit and that like just learning how to do that became a grave for me as a death, but it also became a great a place of great fruitfulness for me that I learned how to do that maybe for the first time in my life, genuinely surrender my will to the will of another. And the really cool thing that kind of happened in that was as scary as that was, and it was scary. What was cool is that when I lived into it, I began to learn how to grow up in relationship in that way, such that I could be genuine. Like all of a sudden there's like a complexity almost that comes in where it's like I could, I had learned how to be, uh, to hold a posture of submission even while pushing back when I needed to push back. You know what I mean? And so then it's like, wow, now what's happened is I've developed a range of motion in my soul that I didn't have before. And what a gift of God that is to me. And now as a leader, like I'm better off because I can lead in a lot of different directions. Most leaders only really learn how to lead down. They only learn how to, you know what I mean? They only know how to lead people who are subordinate to them in some way. They might learn how to lead across, they never learn how to lead up. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so I don't know where like my vocational journey is going to go from here. I'm a congregational pastor. I'm still submitted to our senior pastor and our elders and all that. But what I love is like every day 
I am leading down, leading across, leading up. And that's not hard anymore. Hmm. And that's a gift of God to me because I learned how to just lay down in that in that grave and, and die. So I think those were the big things. Yeah, I think it was learning how to grieve, open open spaces, staying put. That is, to me, uh, that's a, a huge element of it. There's so much transformation that we will just never touch unless mm-hmm. we learn how to hold the framework of our lives intact. And too often it's our fear or our vanity that makes us reshape our lives constantly. And there's just something about the dailiness, you know, staying put that allows you to transform and grow. Yeah. But yeah. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. What do you think are some of the key pieces for uh, our society today could learn from the desert fathers and mothers? I think it's a few things. One is, you know, I think that they have, at the, at the most obvious level, the desert fathers and mothers have a sense of the sacred that's lost in our day. Like we just don't have it. And everything for them was permeated with holiness. Everything was permeated with glory. And therefore it demanded a kind of response from us that sort of like moral rectitude is almost a function of being able to recognize the essential holiness of things. Like that might be a way to say it. And, you know, Wendell Berry, I think it was, he said that there are no sacred places and unsacred places. There are only sacred places and desecrated places. (laughs) And I think that in our day, we need to realize that our warped way of approaching our lives is desecrating the world around us. And that the way to the way back is just beginning to recognize that all things come from the hand of God and that there's an essential holiness to them. We need to recover our, our sense of God. Our, that, that to me is the biggest thing. And once you really have that and you really believe that in your bones, then certain other kinds of things follow. So I, I think that's a really big one. Maybe the first one. I think, you know, going back to Henry Nowen, Way of the Heart, flee, be silent, and pray always. That's still really, really good advice. I think that we're more, you know, he wrote that book 40 years ago, and he said we're caught in the grip of a compulsive society. <laughs> that is, it is so much more the case now than it was back then. I, I think that we're, the compulsions are everywhere. And I think social media, honestly, is the hugest piece of it. Like our cell phones, you know, like they are set up to make addicts out of us. They're set up to keep us perpetually distracted. By they're design. also set up by design. <laughs> they're yeah. set up, exactly. They're set up to keep us perpetually defining ourselves by what we can purchase and by what people say about us. They're set up to keep us perpetually angry. And they're, so you got to find a way to flee still. We have to find a way to detach without just saying no completely to the world and kind of running away. You know, you have to, it's like the, it's, it's attached detachment. Somehow you have to do that. You have to find a way to constantly reclaim your freedom and your creative distance. And um, if you do that, you'll start, that will change the way that you think about your words. I think that we don't realize how powerful our words really are. And the desert fathers and mothers, they knew that they knew that words carried the power of life and death. And so they were so very careful with what they said. And they, they just thought it was better. It was better to be silent than to speak foolish words, better to be silent than speak angry words. Sometimes better to be silent, even to think words that you think to say words that you think are good 
sometimes just taking that extra beat with silence actually helps you see, like you become the kind of person who can do what Proverbs recommends, which is you can speak the word fitly spoken. That's like apples of gold and settings of silver. I think we need that. And then of course, prayer is a place of recovery of that as well. Uh, so I, I think those things, and then I'll just, I think the one final thing, and this kind of goes back to the first thing, and there's so many things we could talk about. But Nathan, I just, I think recovering a sense of the, the holiness of others, of people. And I touched on, you know, the kind of impulse towards polarization a little bit ago. But Christianity is the, it's the faith that crosses the boundary. That's what Jesus does. And that's the work of God in Christ brings together Jew and Gentile. You know, like the barriers are... And yet we still are allowing ourselves to constantly be pulled kind of into our tribes. We prefer the people that we feel the safest around. We don't know how to be in relationship with people who are genuinely other than us. And that's a real, that's a loss to our spiritual lives because others enrich us. It's also a loss to our society. We have a society that is constantly splintering and fragmenting. And of all the people in society, the people of God, have to be the ones who are going, wait a minute, like in Christ, there's no Jew or Gentile, male or female, Democrat or Republican, slave or free, like we're all one and they're willing to go there. So, you know, I can't remember who it was. Maybe it was Anthony, Abba Anthony, who said that our life and our death is with our neighbor. And if we gain our brother, we've gained Christ. And if we sin against our, our brother, then it's like we lose God in our lives. And Rowan Williams, he's got a, a book on the desert fathers and mothers that's so beautiful. And his work, his title is Where God Happens. And the working thesis is that it's relationships. Mm-hmm. That God is, we think of God as this kind of being bouncing around in the cosmos, but God is more a verb than anything else. God is a happening. And God happens between us when we move towards one another in, in love. And we'll only really do that if we see the essential holiness of, of people. So I, I think we've got to find a way to recover that, that those people that maybe those people that scare us most, those people that threaten us most, those people that most challenge our self-identity. I think the Desert Fathers and Mothers would say those are the people that we we most need to love, not just for their sakes, but maybe for our sakes. Yeah, that's right. For the sake of seeing the emergence of God among us. Otherwise, our experience of God will be diminished. It will be small. It's helpful. Thank you, Andrew. I appreciate your time and um, Mm -hmm. sharing your story with us. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. And that was Andrew Arndt talking about the desert fathers and mothers. Andrew serves as pastor of New Life East in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and is author of Streams in the Wasteland, Finding Spiritual Renewal with the Desert Fathers and Mothers. You can find out more about Andrew and his writing at andrewart.com. That's Andrew, A-R-N-D-T, dot com. I'm Nathan Foster, and you've been listening to the Renovare Podcast. We're so grateful for all of you who helped make this work possible. You can support Renovare and this podcast with a tax-deductible gift at renovare.org slash donate. Renovare is a Christian ecumenical renewal effort, offering resources and experiences to help people become more like Jesus. You can find a collection of thoughtfully curated articles, podcasts, webinars, online classes, as well as information on events and our institute on our website at renovare.org. This podcast is produced by Brian Morricon, who also wrote the opening song titled Be Kind. 
Until next time, be well, friends. Be well. <laughs>